Thanks, Nick and team. It's great to be preaching today, and I'm really excited to be here. As Nick said, my name's Ian, and I'm one of the pastors here. Along with Law, I give leadership to Bosch PM, and it really is a privilege to be here. We have a bit of a dilemma in our family at the moment as summer is approaching. A little two-year-old girl basically just keeps wanting to take off her clothes, saying, I'm hot, I'm hot. Normally in Cape Town, it's suns out, guns out, but for her, it's suns out, bums out. Now, that's got nothing to do with what we're talking about today. What we are is back in the series of Mark, and Paul did a, a phenomenal job unpacking Jesus arriving back in his hometown and how people respond to him. And today we're going to unpack a text that also has so much to do with how people respond to the person of Jesus. But it's a really interesting piece of scripture. It has royal family lines divided and clashing kingdoms, Roman rule, debauchery, and beheading. It's literally an HBO series in the making, a Netflix series in the making. Probably one of those ones we shouldn't watch, or at least one of those ones I shouldn't watch. But as we unpack this text, we're going to see that there's a fundamental difference between an HBO series depicting these things in the Bible, where an HBO series would depict these things for our entertainment. The Word of God brings these things to show us something about ourselves, the world, and it comes with a message that calls a response from us, calls us to respond to it. And as we unpack this text, we're going to realize it's not for our entertainment, but it's actually a deeply challenging piece of Scripture. And we're going to unpack it under three headings. The first one being, our world is torn between two kingdoms. The second one, our heart is torn between two kingdoms. And thirdly, a king and a kingdom that calls for our response. Before we dive in and read it, I'm just going to pray for us quickly. Father, I ask that as we read a scripture that is full of very interesting things and, and, and God, that can be quite challenging, I pray that we would meet you that we would encounter your kindness, that we would encounter you, a person who loves us and gave himself for us. God, we, we need you as we, we unpack your word to understand what you're saying to us. Father, will we not keep this stuff at arm's length, but will we let it penetrate our minds and our hearts in a way that changes and transforms us? God, we need you, we love you, we trust you, and we rest in you. Amen. Mark 6, verse 14 to 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herod's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. 
And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent the executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So what this this text where we're going to start unpacking this text is to look at our world is torn between two kingdoms. And what we see going on here is in the text just before this, Jesus, is, his kingdom is, is escalating. It's becoming more powerful. For the very first time, he's released the power of the kingdom to his disciples. And they've gone out and they've declared the good news of Jesus. And r- real power has been put on display as people have been healed and phenomenal signs and miracles have taken place. And because of this, the fame of Jesus and the fame of his kingdom is starting to spread. And what we see happen here is that uh, King Herod hears of it. King Herod hears of the fame of Jesus and he hears of the fame of this kingdom. We read it in verse 14, which is, King Herod heard of it for, for Jesus' name had become known. Jesus is becoming famous. And kings are having to stand up and listen to what he is saying and what he is doing, and try and make sense of who is this person, Jesus? Who is this man? And what is he about? And where does this power come from? And everyone's trying to make sense of this. Everyone's trying to figure out this question at this point in Mark. The disciples, religious leaders, and now political leaders, and even in his own hometown, his family members and people who grew up with him are trying to make sense of who is Jesus? Who is this man? And where does this power come from? And then here in Mark, we see people giving a few examples or options for for who Jesus is. The first one we see is he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. So some people believe like Jesus Jesus was just a man and, and God had poured out his spirit and given him power and authority in a unique way like he used to do for the prophets of old. Others said that he is Elijah and In Malachi 4, we see a prophetic word that the spirit of Elijah or the power of Elijah would come before the Messiah or the Christ or the king of the kingdom. And some people thought that Jesus was that. Later on, we'd see that Jesus said, no, John the the Baptist was a fulfillment of that prophecy. And then the least likely option that's given is John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This kind of superstitious idea that John had been raised and that he was now the person of Jesus. uh, And that's where the power came from. But that last one catches the attention of Herod. Verse 16, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. We start to learn something about Herod. He's a superstitious man with an unclear conscience. And the least likely option about Jesus becomes the most probable one in his mind as he tries to grapple and answer that question, who is this man? And it actually has so much, so little to do with who Jesus is because he hasn't met him yet. And so much to do with what's going on in his heart and how he responds to the power of this coming kingdom. And in many ways, this power must have threatened Herod. We see it threatens him. We see that he's intimidated by this power of this kingdom. And so he attributes it to John. And John's come back to get him. And he thinks that the power of this kingdom is against him. And his rule and his reign is threatened. But this is Herod Antipas. And Herod the Great, his father. I mean, Herod the Great. Think, that's a serious shadow to live in as a son with your father being called Herod the Great. And Herod the Great had, had rule over the whole of the Jewish nation. And, and when Jesus was born... Herod the Great is also threatened by the coming of Jesus. 
Look at what Matthew 2, 1-2 says. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These men come to King Herod the Great and they say, there is a king who's been born who's legitimate and he is worthy of worship. Where is he? And immediately King Herod is threatened by the, the news and the authority of this arrival of this king. So what he does is he has every firstborn murdered that would have been in the area that Jesus was born to the age that Jesus would have been. And there's great sadness and brokenness as King Herod is threatened by the coming of the king of king jesus and what this teaches us and what this shows us is that this the kingdom of god has arrived that king is the that jesus is the king of this kingdom and it it comes with the claim of i am the ultimate authority and it puts on display incredible power and this threatens the kingdoms of man And we see a clash take place between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And it has real consequence. We see King Herod the Great kill innocent children. And now we see King Herod Antipas kill an innocent man. What we learn about John's place in this story and the text that we're reading about is that it takes place in a context of clashing kingdoms. And it helps us make sense of what happened to John. And we see this reality that John is a part of something so much bigger than himself. His story is a part of a far bigger story, which has to do with the coming of the true kingdom. We see this in Mark 1, 14 to 15, which I got to preach at the beginning of the year. And what's happening here is Mark's actually closing the loop on John the Baptist. He, He mentions him there, and now he mentions him again to help us understand what happened to him. But when we look back there, this is what it says. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And theologians say this is incredibly significant. What happens here is John is arrested and no longer is there a need for the messenger of the, the messenger of the coming kingdom because the king has arrived. The king and its king, his kingdom is here. And John steps aside to allow Jesus to step up and take his rightful place. And in that moment, as Jesus does that, as John steps aside and Jesus declares the coming of the kingdom, he says, the real king has arrived, the one with true authority over creation and all kingdoms of man, and the one with true power. And he puts that on display. And what we see taking place is what Paul described last time as he quoted Martin Lloyd-Jones on that quote, that this world is not a playground, but a battleground. That the context of this story, the context of our lives, the context of this world is that there is a clash of kingdoms. The kingdoms of man and the kingdoms of God. And yes, there are many kingdoms of men and there are many men and women trying to raise, rise up the ranks to be kings of these kingdoms. But everything that they have in common is that they reject the rule and the reign of the true king, Jesus himself. True authority, authority of the kingdom of God. And these kingdoms clash. And there's real consequence to that clash, which is why the world is the way it is and why Christ followers are sober about the reality of the world. We touched on that in the Citizen Series. But this clash of kingdoms is not just external. It's not just out there. It also plays out in our hearts, which brings us to our next point. As we unpack this text further, we're going to see that our heart is torn between two kingdoms. 
that this, this clashing kingdoms gets right down to the deepest parts of our hearts and says that there is a battle going on in our hearts. You see, John, John comes with a message of the coming kingdom. And that message that he comes with not only challenges external rule of Herod, but it also challenges his personal actions and desires. For John has been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. You see how John's message doesn't deal with the external actions of uh, Herod's rule, but it deals with the desires and wants of his heart. And what's going on here, we, we, we don't have a full picture, and I want to give us the full picture. So Herod was now married to his brother's wife. Herod had been married. He got rid of his old wife, and he stole um, his brother Philip's wife. And what we, we learn um, from history is that Herodias was another one of their brother's daughters. So not only has he stolen his brother's wife, but he's also in a relationship with his niece. And so he finds himself in this adulterous, incestuous relationship. And Paul speaks up against it. And he says, your heart might want this, but it does not align to what is true, what is good, and what is life-giving. It does not align to the true ruler of your heart. It does not align to the, the, the ways of the true kingdom of your heart. It does not align to the life-giving ways of God. And this message confronts Herod's wants and desires at the deepest level of his heart. And Herod probably felt that battle going on inside. The battle of kingdom of self versus the kingdom of God, which would not just lay claim to creation, but would lay claim to his very heart. And Herod had a massive problem with accepting or desiring authority that he did not have. He says this when, when, when Herodias' daughter comes to him. He says, and he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And it's such a strange claim because Herod had no kingdom. Herod was a tetriarch or what we would probably call a governor. You see, Herod the Great ruled over the entire Jewish nation. When he died, it split in, his kingdom was split into four. And the Roman Empire has put four of his sons as tetriarchs to look after him. He looked after um, uh, Galilee and Perea. That was his region to govern over. It would be like the governor of Cape Town going, I am president and everyone must call me president when everybody knows he's not. And that's what's going on here. Herod is desiring to be called a king when he has no legitimate rule or reign or authority to be called a king. He's just a governor stewarding a part of the Roman Empire. And our hearts are the same. Our hearts love to claim illegitimate rule. They love to say, we are the final authority over my heart. I am the, this is the kingdom of self and I am its king. And no one else lays claim to this heart but me. I can do what I want, when I want, how I want, when it comes to me and my life. And the kingdom or the message of the kingdom that John brings to Herod would confront that reality and say, no, we would actually call that sin. That's what the Bible calls the kingdom of self, this, this rejection of Jesus, this rejection of the creator of the universe as the one who has final authority, not just over creation, but over us and our lives. Where we try to live lives of independence, where we try to make sense of this world and our lives independent of God. 
And the Bible would call this sin. And Jesus steps into human history and he says, I lay claim to you. And what this text goes on to do, what this story goes on to do is to show us the ways of the kingdom of self. As I said earlier, the Bible's not shy about what we do in secret. The Bible's not shy about the things that we like to hide and do. The Bible's not naive about the pain that we cause each other. It does not hold back on being honest about the human condition. And it goes to a birthday party to show us what full-blown kingdom of self-living looks like. And we find ourselves at this birthday party of Herod where he's invited all the who's who of Galilee and Perea to be at his party, military leaders, uh, businessmen, uh, leaders of areas within those, that space. And he calls them all together, the who's who of Galilee and Perea. And he throws himself this birthday party. And at this birthday party, someone is beheaded. And the worst part of this whole birthday party, the biggest crime is that Herod's wife, Herodias, gives herself a birthday present on his birthday. I am a birthday person, and if Laura did that, that would take a lot of um, forgiveness to, to come back from. And all of this setting of the stage, all of this birthday party, everything that happens there is, is there to show us the full-blown reality of brokenness and destruction that comes from our sin. Let's look at Herod. He's a power-hungry, people-pleasing bully and coward. He sits there knowing that John is innocent. He's even completely saddened by the fact that he has to kill him. But instead of losing face, what he does is he has him executed. You see that? He doesn't stand up for him. In fact, it's hard to see that Herod stands up for anything but his own power, his own wants, and his own desires. He's nice and agreeable to people he deems worthy or thinks that he thinks matter. But that allows him or empowers him to be cruel to everybody else. He's incredibly power hungry, as we explained early, earlier. And what's so sad is that he allows his stepdaughter, daughter, and we, we know from the word used for daughter that she was between the ages of 12 and 14, to come and do a dance in front of all these men that he's gathered for his party. I looked at theologians and commentaries to try and redeem this dance, but it's pretty clear that the context of a party, alcohol, men being gathered, that this was essential dance. And he, as her stepfather, allows this to take place. And there's a deadly combination taking place in Herod's heart here. There's pride and lust, and that's deadly. If, you have, if you're dealing with lust in your life, but you're humble about it, and you press into God, and you, you open up your struggle to community, and you seek help, and you humbly pursue Jesus, there's a good chance you can defeat lust. But if you put pride and lust together, that's a deadly combination. And then you have Herodias, his, his illegitimate wife, and she's vindictive and vengeful and bitter and cunning. And what happens is John comes with a message that she really doesn't like and, and she, she harbors a grudge. She, she harbors resentment and bitterness, which in and of themselves can seem so small. But as it grows, it becomes this cunning plan where she just waits for the right time, where she can have John executed and dealt with. She can get her vengeance. 
And she spends her life as she, she gives herself over to, to this grudge, as she gives herself over to vindictiveness and wanting revenge. What she does is she turns everybody around her into chess pieces on a chessboard and she gets to manipulate those chess pieces and that chessboard to get what she wants as she serves the kingdom of self. And no one is exempt, not even her daughter, who becomes a pawn on this chessboard used to get her own way. And she sends her daughter out to go and dance before Herod and the men that are gathered. And what's interesting about her daughter is that she seems to be a willing partaker in some ways because she's the one who adds that little, she runs out after getting advice from her mother and says, I want his head and I want it on a platter. And there's a vindictiveness in her as well. And you see the influence of a, a mother using her daughter and the, the sort of how this vengeance and this greed and this bitterness just spreads from one to the other. And then we have the crowd. And this is, this is an interesting one. This crowd sitting there going, feed me, entertain me, and don't hold me accountable for any of the darkness in this world. Feed me, entertain me, and don't hold me accountable for any of the darkness in this world. And what we see here is on this stage, on this, in this, this narrative that, that Mark tells us is the real destructive consequence of sin. We see the death of a good man. And this is where so much of the pain in this world comes from. These clashing kingdoms out there in the world, the reality that there is the kingdom of God and the every other kingdom that would stand in opposition to it. And there's collateral damage when, when the kingdoms of man push back against God. And that the, when the kingdoms of self and the kingdom of God clash within our hearts, it can breed real damage in our relationships and our lives. You see, sin is truly destructive. Power, pride, anger, vengeance, sex out of God's design for it, porn and lust, all these things always lead to destruction. When we cut against God's ways, he's designed the world in a certain way where, where if we, we, we follow the rivers that God has designed, the river banks that God has given us, the ways of God which lead to life and flourishing and goodness, when we cut across those, what we find is destruction and death and chaos and pain. So what I quickly want to say to Christ followers is are you killing sin in your life? And I use that word kill intentionally and it might seem so intense and it might seem so strong, but I can guarantee you that sin is not just playing with you. It has an intention to kill you and destroy you and to destroy your relationships and to destroy the people around you. So I'll ask you again, are you killing sin in your life? Because you see with Herod and Herodias, these things started off with what they would probably consider quite small and it became full-blown murder. Greed and lust, pride and lust, greed and vengeance. Things we've probably all experienced in some way or form grew into this tree of murder. I think we sometimes take sin quite lightly as Christ follows. We have this family dog called Max. He's a rescue dog. He's been through a lot in his life. He's got pretty sharp teeth. He's lovely natured, but he's very skittish. And, and you can be playing with him one moment and it's going so well and then suddenly he'll nip you and it'll be quite painful. You're wrestling with him and he'll bite you. But it's out of the, and, and I think we sometimes treat sin like that. It's this, this 
kind of cute dog that I can control, I can manage, and, and if I'm careful, it won't do too much damage, it won't hurt me too much, and you're probably not going to let your children play with it because he's unpredictable, you're not, not, you, you don't know what's going to happen, but as an adult, oh, I can manage this, I can control this, and I might get a bit nipped every once in a while, but that's not sin. What we see here on full display is sin is far more like picking up a viper, a poisonous viper by the tail and playing with it and pretending that its intent is good and that you can control it. And the entire time, it's just waiting for the moment where it can deal a deadly, destructive blow. And we are called to kill it, to kill sin and not play with sin. And if you're looking in to the claims of Jesus, This battle, this clash that takes place in the heart between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God is the biggest reason why there is so much pain in this world and so much pain in your life. It's why we hurt each other and people hurt us. It's why the world is not the way it should be. And this is why it's so amazing that, that all that's been put on display, all this sinfulness and brokenness that we see here isn't just for our entertainment but it comes with a message of hope, comes with a message of power that allows us to take our pain and our brokenness and our sin and our rebellion somewhere. That brings us to point three, a king and a kingdom that calls for our response. As I said earlier, that the story could be read as an entertaining one, fascinating one, but it's so much more than that. Rather, it's speaking of a a king and a kingdom that comes and makes a claim about reality, makes a claim about this world, makes a claim about your heart, makes a claim about the human condition and the, the, the relationship of humanity between God and us. And as it makes this claim, it calls us to respond to its message. It's why this very kingdom starts with a messenger declaring its arrival, declaring that it is here. And John comes as the messenger of this kingdom. And I quickly want to look at at the impact of the kingdom on John's character and the message that he came with. The first one, the impact of this kingdom on John. We've looked at Herodias, we've looked at Herod, we've looked at the crowd that looked on, but yet here's a man who's experienced and tasted the kingdom. And look at what it says about him. He's described by Herod as a righteous and holy man. Herod looks at him and goes, there's something unique and different. There's something about you that stands out. You are not the same as everybody. You are not the same as the crowd that follows me around. I'm intrigued by you. And he uses these words, righteousness and holiness, which simply means that John was a man who walked in right standing with God. He had deep, meaningful, intimate relationship with his father. He knew him. And he walked in good, healthy relationship with him. And and calling him holy means that John was aligning his life and his ways to the life and the ways of God. That the very nature and character of God was the thing that he longed to see be his nature and his character. That the things that God called good, John called good. The things that God called destructive, John called destructive. That's simply what Herod means by a righteous and holy man. And when we look at John, he is a man of boldness and courage and integrity, conviction and humility, who spoke truth even if it meant trouble. And his message came with humility, clarity, urgency and integrity. 
The Bible describes him as a voice crying, a finger pointing, and a light shining. He was a voice crying, the kingdom is here. Respond to this kingdom. He was a finger pointing going, Jesus is the king of this kingdom. You need to engage with him. You need to encounter him. You need to meet him. And you need to make your mind up about him. And he would point to the person of Jesus and he would be a light shining. He would not live for his own glory and fame, but he would shine a light onto the person of Jesus saying, he is the one worthy of fame and glory. He must increase and I must decrease to quote his very words of John. You see, John would have experienced that battle of the kingdom of self versus the kingdom of God in his heart. And what he says is, I must decrease and he must increase. I want more of the kingdom of God in this world and I want more of the kingdom of God in me. I must decrease. He is the one worthy of increase. And I will declare his message and I will speak of his fame and I will do it no matter what the cost is. And you see, what we see in John is John knew that to be a follower of Christ to be a part of the kingdom of God came with very real skin in the game. This wasn't just something he was interested in. This is something that he had surrendered his entire life and being to. And he experienced the full cost of being a follower of Jesus and he was beheaded because he declared boldly the realities of the kingdom of God. And he did not mind. He'd weighed the cost and he did not mind that it would cost him his life. This is what it means to be someone who's encountered Jesus, encountered the kingdom and lives within the kingdom of God. And he came with a message of repentance. And as I said, I got to preach on Mark 1.45 and really unpack the beauty of this word repentance, this beauty of this message repentance. That Repentance is a beautiful thing where anybody who experiences guilt and shame, anyone who finds himself waking up night going, I can't believe I've done that thing. I can't believe I'm that sort of person. There's so many people I've pastored where the, the, something small like lust started in their life and it became full-blown affairs. And you speak to them, and they say, I never thought I would become that sort of person. I never took sin seriously. And now I live with a weight that I don't know what to do with. And then I've seen them bring that to Jesus in repentance. And I've seen their marriages restored. I've seen lives restored. I've seen free them experience freedom that they never thought they could experience because they simply admitted that they needed Jesus that they weren't the, the kings of themselves, that they, this kingdom of self is a fallacy and it leads to pain and destruction. And they bowed their knees and they experienced freedom and life and forgiveness in ways that they never thought was possible as they responded to this incredible message, change your mind about God and change your mind about yourself. And it's a simple call to bow our knees and say, we're not the king of this kingdom. We belong to someone else. And when we do that, we are invited and called by Jesus, righteous and holy. We are established by Jesus when we surrender to him as those who are now in right standing with God, who can walk in deep, lovely, intimate relationship with God, whose hearts and desires are being transformed by God to be the things that he loves and to avoid the things that he calls destructive. And every single one of us who encounters Jesus needs to make up our mind about it. That's what we saw last week. That's what we're seeing this week. And that's what we're going to see next week as we unpack these, these verses in Mark, that this is about making sense of who Jesus is. And in this text, we see three responses to Jesus and this message, three responses to the coming kingdom and its claims. 
Herodias just flat out rejects the message of John and rejects John. Verse 19, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. There is an anger in her heart as she hears this message. And either it's because she doesn't believe that Jesus is God or she doesn't care that Jesus is God. And for her, the kingdom of self is the only option and the only thing she desires. And she fully and completely rejects Jesus and lives fully into the fruit of kingdom of self. And then you've got Herod with, with a much more interesting response. His response is what I like to call deadly curiosity. Read verse 20 with me. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. There's a weird relationship between John and uh, Herod here, a weird relationship between Herod and the message that John comes. He's perplexed by it, but he hears him gladly. He fears John. He can see something is unique and different about John. But it's deadly curiosity. What do I mean by that? Is that John was a man whose conscience was clearly not clear. A man whose conscience was, was clearly disturbed and, 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 and he, he wrestled with stuff as we see how he, he killed Herod and he was displeased by that. His superstitious response to Jesus thinking that John was back to get him. There's this uncertainty in his conscience and unease in his conscience. But as he hears this message from, from John, as he hears this message of the kingdom, he can't connect the dots between what's going on in his heart, this unease of conscience, and this incredible offer of repentance that John is bringing. And what he does is he keeps that message at arm's length, and he never allows that message to actually penetrate his heart and actually meaningfully change him. Herod the Great and his entire family were known for two things, an interest with religion and great cruelty. And those things aren't compatible. So you have this history of this family going, I find these things interesting. And where they perplex me, I'm not going to dive too deep. Where they might challenge my own heart, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to be interested by it. I'm going to enjoy it at arm's length. But I'm not going to be transformed by it. Herod would meet Jesus. Herod would be in Jerusalem just before Jesus is crucified. And Jesus would be sent to him. And Herod had the fascination with Jesus. And when Jesus got to, to Herod, there were people accusing Jesus of all sorts of things. And Herod asked Jesus a whole bunch of questions. You know what Jesus did? Jesus remained silent. He did not speak. He did not say a single thing to Herod. It's as if Jesus was standing there going, I am the creator of the universe and I will no longer be your entertainment. I will willingly and gladly be your savior, but I will not be your entertainment. And Herod would leave that moment. It's as if Jesus said, hey, the message that John brought was enough. And I think Herod would find himself his deadly curiosity, meaning that he never truly encountered the person and the work of Jesus. And then you have John, who responds to the message of the coming kingdom with complete and utter surrender. 
knowing that he was not living in a playground but on a battleground, and that the most true and wonderful thing that he could give his one and only life to was the fame of Jesus and the coming of his kingdom and the declaration of its message in hope that Jesus would be made famous and people would encounter him and be saved and transformed and freed from their guilt and shame. What we're going to do now is we're going to go into a time of communion and there are different responses here. If you're a Christ follower, I'm going to lead you in a response. But if you're looking into the claims of Jesus, could I call you to not just have a daily curiosity with Jesus, but that you would press into him, that you would seek him, that you would desire to know the true Jesus and what he's truly done and what he truly offers you. A legitimate response to Jesus is to go on a journey of exploring who he is. But don't just stay, keep him at arm's length. Hear what he actually has to say. Hear what he's actually done. And think deeply about the implications for you and your life. And there is a wonderful offer of repentance, a wonderful offer to bring all the things in your life that you know you shouldn't have done and all the guilt and shame that you carry and freely bring it to the person of Jesus who will deal with it. For those of us who are Christ followers, we are now going to respond in communion. So what we've learned today is that the context of this text, the context of the world that we live in, and everything that we give ourselves to takes place in the reality that Jesus is the true king, and that his kingdom is the true kingdom, and that he has complete authority and reign over creation and all he's created. That's Claim number one. But what's incredible, what we know about Jesus, is that he is a king who was crucified. And that's what we remember as we drink this wine and eat this bread, is that we serve a crucified king. What king is crucified for his enemies? The beautiful thing about narrative is we love to place ourselves in the story. So often I like to place myself as the hero, John. But the reality is, what I know about myself is I'm often closer to Herodias and I'm closer to Herod. I'm closer to the crowd. And that's why Jesus needed to be a king who would be crucified. So that I would be able to repent and I would be able to respond and I would be able to come to him and experience his freedom, his grace, and his forgiveness. And so that he could make me more like John, a righteous and holy person in wonderful life-giving relationship with him. That's what we remember when we drink this, the wonderful grace and kindness of God. And we remember that it cost him in a very real way as his body was broken and his blood was spilt. Let's celebrate what God has done. Let's celebrate that when we eat this and drink this, we also celebrate a resurrection that proves that he is who he said he was and that we are now who he says we are. Let's do that together now.